continue our church history odyssey. And now we are on the next lesson, which is the 5th century theologians and controversies. Specifically, I'll be talking about the church father John Chrysostom, St. Jerome, and Augustine of Hippo. And we'll be talking about the Pelagian controversy. Now, obviously, uh, there is a lot to cover in this one. So I'm actually, I already know in advance, it's going to take me two weeks to, to get through this one. So my goal tonight is just to cover the three figures, um, Chrysostom, Jerome, and Augustine. And then um, next time I'll cover Pelagianism. And so with that, just uh, getting right into it. Historians see the 4th and 5th centuries as the golden age of the church fathers because there were just simply a lot of outstanding church leaders. We've already uh, talked about a lot of them, uh, Athanasius, the Cappadocian fathers, um, meaning Gregory uh, of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil of Caesarea, um, just a lot of solid folks. Uh, well, when we get to the 5th century, there's also a lot of solid folks. You end up with Augustine. You end up with John Chrysostom. You end up with uh, Jerome. So we're going to be focusing on these three great leaders whose lives and works, they begin at the end of the 4th century, but really, you know, they, they end in the 5th century. Um, and uh, next time we'll get into the details of the Pelagian heresy because there's certain elements of it that keep coming up today. So the first of these figures, John Chrysostom, very, very important church father, very interesting story. His life dates are from 349 to 407. He is considered probably one of the best preachers in all of history, not just of the early church, but of all of, of history. Now, as a youth, he studied law. He was going to be a lawyer. So he studied under the famous pagan rhetorician Libanius. And Libanius um, saw John Chrysostom as his most promising student. But when John became a Christian, it made this pagan mad. He's like, the Christians stole him from us. They were, he was very upset over that. Now, 18 years old, uh, John became passionately devoted to studying the scriptures. And part of his motivation was to uh, counter uh, the paganism that he learned from Libanius. Uh, so his whole thing was, you know, what? I'm going to study scripture and I'm going to counter the rampant paganism that's in the Roman Empire. Even though the empire was legally Christian, there were still a lot of pagans at this time. Uh, so he's going to work against that. Now, he becomes a disciple of a man named Miletus. So I'll put this back up named Miletus, who was technically the bishop of the Christians at Antioch. So you could say he was the patriarch of Antioch. Because if you remember, Antioch is one of the five major cities. But, little caveat I have to throw here, this was during the height of the Arian controversy when the Arians actually were had legal favor and they took all the buildings from the real Christians. So the real church was actually functioning as an underground church that was meeting, meeting in the open air. And Miletus was the bishop of the true or the orthodox church. And so, of course, John in part is discipled by him. He gets baptized by him. Uh, on Easter of 368, if you remember, I mentioned that uh, for some reason they, they did all their baptisms on Easter instead of when somebody needed it. Uh, they had them go through their three-year catechism process, and then if they uh, passed everything, they'd be baptized on Easter. That's what happened to John. Uh, and then once he's uh, baptized and he's part of the church, he studies under the renowned Bible teacher, Diodore of Tarsus, who was Miletus's uh, assistant. Um, so Diodore is going to be very formative in how John talked about last time. 
you had the two schools. So last time I went into considerable detail about this. You have the school of Antioch and the school of Alexandria. And they both had very different ways of how they approached the scripture. Well, John was part of the Church of Antioch. He learned how to interpret scripture from the Antiochian school. And if you remember, the Antiochian school was all about straightforward historical meaning of the text. The Alexandrians in Egypt, they were all about allegory. Let's not look at the historical or plain meaning, meaning, but let's dive deeper into the allegorical meaning, which of course they could assign to it whatever they want. And so the Antiochians didn't like that. And Diodore, in specific, didn't like that. And so he emphasized, again, what we would call a historical grammatical hermeneutic. Not exactly the same as the modern historical grammatical hermeneutic, but a lot of similarity. A lot of similarity. So the idea is, what did the author mean? What did it mean in its historical setting? And how do we apply its timeless truth to our uh, our audience right now. That is how the Antiochians approach Scripture. That's how we approach Scripture. We're not big-time allegorists here. Uh, so I, I think we would have... If you were to read John's sermons and compare it to some of the sermons written from Alexandrians, you'd probably like John Chrysostom's sermons a lot more. Uh, he's going to follow the method of his teacher very closely, but he's going to be way better at it. Again, one of the best preachers of all times. He would perform a very meticulous and scholarly study of the meaning of words and the historical backgrounds of each part of the scripture that he's explaining. And he did a really good job for the time. In, in addition to John Chrysostom, uh, you have some big figures like Basil of Caesarea, one of the Cappadocian fathers. He was also an advocate of this literal approach or the plain meaning or what we call the grammatical historical method today. Now, he learns to approach scripture this way, but he's not a teacher yet, but there is a path towards his ordination. In the year 372, um, he left Antioch. Now, they wanted him to become a preacher. They wanted him actually to become a bishop, but he felt unworthy. And so he leaves to join a bunch of hermits. Now, I have not told you about monasticism yet. I'm going to fit it into one of these future lessons. But by this point, monasticism existed. That's where you have monasteries and people live as monks and the women would live as nuns. He's going to go join the hermits. The hermits are specifically a desert group of, uh, of monks. And so he does so in uh, Silpios. Now, the reason why he felt so unworthy and why he felt this was the best route for him is he had a hard time controlling his sexual desire. So he's like, if I got these desires, I'm unworthy. I cannot uh, be a bishop. And so he figured by joining the monks, they would teach him self-discipline. He would get this under control, and then he would be worthy to be a, a bishop. And he took his time with the monks very seriously. I mean, he starved himself to the point where he damaged his body, sleep deprivation, deprivation, starvation. So he's like, let me see how many days I could go without sleep. Let's see how long I could go without food. I'm going to beat my body into submission. And that was really how... Uh, how he approached it, but the problem was he caused irreparable damage to his body by doing that. Um, so, yeah. But anyhow, after he spent six years or so uh, with the monks, he returns to Antioch in 378. By this point, the Arians were, they, they had lost their political sta status. 
Um, you have a, a, a Nicene emperor in charge. The Arians are finally getting what's due to them during this time, especially how dirty they played politics. And so they lost all the church buildings that they stole from the Orthodox. So by this point, when Chrysostom goes back to Antioch, everything is back in the hands of the Orthodox Christians. And in 380, so two years later, my, uh, Miletus makes uh, John Chrysostom, he makes him a deacon. And by the way, Nobody was calling him Chrysostom yet. That's not his name. Uh, it's a title that the church gave to him after he died. Anybody know what Chrysostom means? It means golden mouth. Meaning he was such a good preacher, they said, his mouth is like gold, you know. And so to the, for henceforth, we call him John Chrysostom, John the golden mouth. So in 380, he's made a deacon. Okay, he's made a deacon, and then he starts to make a name for himself, really on the streets. He's such an eloquent speaker as he's telling people about true Nicene Christianity. And so what happens is Miletus dies not long after this. The next bishop of Antioch is a man named Flavian, and he ordains John as a presbyter, or they would call him priest at that point, but they were presbyter. He was made an elder in 386. At this point, this gave him access to the pulpit. And once he got access to the pulpit, and once he started preaching, he clearly was the best preacher in all of Antioch. And keep in mind, Antioch was one of the five major cities. I mean, his sermons were so good, it just captivated people, and people loved him. So let me tell you a little bit about John the preacher, Chrysostom, good old golden mouth as a preacher. Over the next 12 years, his preaching in Antioch granted him a great reputation that went beyond Antioch and spread all over the empire. In fact, he was the most famous preacher in the whole eastern half of the Roman Empire. And that's why I mentioned he was nicknamed by the church Chrysostom or Golden Mouth. Now, how did he preach? Like we do, verse by verse, through whole books of the Bible. He didn't do this allegorical stuff. He didn't do topicals. He did verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. And he, he, this guy had guts. He had guts. He would stand up to the establishment. He's like, I don't care how rich you are. I don't care if you're the emperor. I don't care who you are. The Bible's the word of God. And so he would call out sins among believers. And the big sin that made him mad of people in the areas where he ministered is they compromise with worldliness. You say you're a Christian, but you're all about making money in this world. You don't help the poor. You don't preach the gospel. He, he really would take the text, but he would hit people hard. He's like, why are you living worldly? Why are you living for this world? Now, his sermons were so impactful that people would make hand copies of them. They're like, oh, this is good stuff. And so they would write down his sermons, and then they make copies of the copies of the copies. And that's one reason we have so much of his stuff surviving today. His sermons were so impactful, people are like, we're not going to let the world forget these. Uh, so that's very interesting. Now, he also wrote Christian treatises, like he would write um, important works on important topics. And so uh, one example is on the priesthood, which is a pastoral handbook. Like, how do you be a good pastor? That was his book on that. And it has some really good advice in it. It is his most reprinted work. A lot of pastors throughout history and priests in the Catholic Church would go to this because they would want to learn from it. Now, in the year 398... Um, Oh, he also wrote a book, hold on, before that, he wrote a book on how to raise children. This is the first book, at least we know of, on Christian parenting. Like, this is how you parent, this is how you parent your kids. Um, now, in 398, there was no preacher in the eastern half of the empire that was as celebrated or esteemed as John Chrysostom. So, what happened is in that same year, the patriarch of Constantinople, which is the capital, he dies. 
And the new emperor had his eyes set on John Chrysostom. Let's get the most famous preacher. Let, let's get the most famous preacher. Let's make him the bishop of, of Constantinople. Now, of course, there's a lot of politics and a lot of intrigue and bribery and all sorts of evil stuff that would happen every time it came to appointing a bishop in Constantinople. Same thing happened here, but he is the emperor. His political intrigues win. And so it is decided <coughs> excuse me, that John Chrysostom is going to be the next patriarch of Constantinople. But, but there's two obstacles to this. One, John would say no. He'd be like, no, I'm a preacher in Antioch. And the people of Antioch love him so much they would riot if you tried to take him away and make him a bishop somewhere else. So the emperor had to be slick. First, he sent um, the army to Antioch just in case riots broke out, they could stop it. And then the second thing is he had to trick John Chrysostom. He's, uh, he had the, the military say, hey, John, there's this little church outside of town. We just want you to come and preach at really quick. And once he gets out of the town, they kidnap him, you know, the soldiers do, and then they drag him to Constantinople. And then the emperor's like, you're going to be the bishop here. He's like, no, I'm not going to be the bishop here. You know, I, I want to go back to Antioch. But after a while, John Chrysostom's the kind of guy that would do whatever it takes for peace. And so he did surrender to the emperor's will after a little while. He's like, okay, you know what? Fine, fine. I will be uh, the preacher of Constantinople. And the interesting thing is it did not take long for the people of Constantinople to love him as much as the people of Antioch. Wherever this guy preached, the common people really liked him. Now the rich and the powerful will start to hate him again, because he doesn't care who he calls out. Now, he was so loved in Constantinople that if he invited a guest preacher to preach, the congregation would storm out and protest. If it's not John preaching, we don't want to hear it. And that's just wrong. If anybody ever did that at Sovereign Way, I would be outside with a whip saying, get back in there, you know, you know. Like, Albert, get back in there. You can't just walk out because, you know, John's not preaching or, or, or what have you. But, uh, but the thing is, uh, that's what they did. That's how much they loved him in Constantinople. Now, this last line here, he is going to make some enemies because he's going to preach against the rich misusing their wealth. And he's going to preach against the worldly attitudes of his congregants. Um, and that will make him enemies. I forgot to bring the book in here. I was going to read a quote from one of his sermons. Um, it's on, in Needham's book on page 257. I'll try to paraphrase it the best I can. Old Golden Mouth uh, preached better than I will be able to paraphrase it. But for the most part, he was saying, like criticizing them for spending more money on their toilets than it would take to feed the poor people in their city. He's like, you care more about your rear ends and the dookies. This is my way of saying it. You know, your rear ends and the dookies that come out of it, they just have to be so pampered. You care more about that than people who are starving, people who you could help, people who you could take care of. And that kind of stuff made a lot of the people, especially the rich women, it made them mad. It made a lot of enemies. But again, nothing was taboo for him when it came to this. He would call them out. Oh, what you have in your hair could feed this person for a long time. Or that you really have to uh, um, plate your toilet with silver? Like your butt needs silver? I mean, he, he just would not hold back. And so Chrysostom is one of my favorites because of his boldness, his faithfulness, and just all he wanted to do was please the Lord and call God's people to follow the word.
As soon as he becomes the patriarch of Constantinople, he was a reformer. His predecessor, like many who came before him, uh, was corrupt and would throw on all these expensive banquets, all these big parties where the rich are invited, and they're spending so much money on food and pomp and all that kind of stuff. He said, we are not doing that anymore. And so once they stopped doing that, he then counted how much money they saved from it, and it was a lot. And so he would take that money and care for the poor. Here we are, we're going to eat on gold plates, yet people are starving in this city. We're not going to do that, especially not in God's church. Again, I love this guy. The more I learn about him, uh, I just love what he did. And also, he expanded the funding of the hospital that was attached to the church. So there was a hospital attached to the church of Constantinople. And he's like, we need to expand it. We need to build more hospitals throughout Constantinople. We need to build Christian houses for the poor and for the homeless so that they're not out in the elements. And so he would direct as many resources as he can to do this. And really, he was able to find a lot of it in just stuff that was wasted. It was they, they were bad stewards because they forgot what our faith is all about. They were living for this world, and even the clergy were living for this world. And when he cut all that extra stuff, it's amazing how much money was left over to actually care for widows and orphans and, and stuff like that. And so, again, that's going to make the establishment mad, but the common person's going to love him. It's going to endear them to him. Now, in Constantinople, <clears throat> there's going to be two relationships that greatly affect him. One's a good relationship, one's a bad one. And what I mean is I, I don't mean they're two friendships. One's a friendship, one is a rival. Uh, and so the good relationship was with a woman named Olympias. She was the leader of the nuns. And so in Constantinople, you had a group of 250 nuns that were led by Olympias. Now, she was from a super wealthy family, uh, and she was widowed after only two years of marriage. And rather than remarrying, she's like, you know what? I'm going to dedicate my life to Christ and to taking care of the poor and the destitute and the widows and the orphans. And so that's what she wanted to do. And she took, she was rich, as I said. She took all of her own wealth and donated it towards that end of taking care of the poor. Again, you know, kind of what Jesus said to the, the rich young ruler, she had no problem doing it. Yeah, I'll sell it all and take care of the poor and then spend the rest of my life following Christ. Um, so again, when she sees what John Chrysostom's doing, she's like, finally, a pastor and a bishop who's about what God tells us to be about. He preaches the word. He, he cares about the things God cares about. And so she was really attached to him. Now, I don't want to imply anything because there was nothing there, but she was beautiful. She's in her early uh, 30s when they uh, meet, when he enters Constantinople. She was highly educated. She loved the Bible, so he liked her too. They liked each other, but by this point, if you were a bishop, you're supposed to be celibate. And if you're a nun, you're supposed to be celibate. So they're never going to touch each other. But you could tell they had a lifelong, like she did his laundry for him. (laughs) She cooked his meals for him, and they spent a lot of time together. You could tell they loved each other, but because of the, I guess you could say the extra-biblical traditions, they're not biblical traditions, um, these two don't get together, they never touch each other. If anybody implies that they did, um, they, they lived in such a way where you can't. They're, they were never alone together. They always had somebody else with them. I guess you could say what people call the Billy Graham rule was the John Chrysostom rule, you know, a lot, many centuries earlier. And they both just had an impact on each other. They cared about each other throughout the, the rest of their lives. Now, 
The second relationship, so he had a good lady friend that helped take care of him. That's the first relationship. The second relationship was with another woman. Well, you could say a woman and her husband, the emperor Arcadius and his wife Eudokia. But I'm going to kind of ignore the emperor because he was a spineless man. He was a spineless man, indecisive, unimpressive, and everybody knows his wife called the shots. He was terrified of her. Whatever she wanted is what happened. So this second relationship, I'm mainly focusing on the Empress Eudokia. She was beautiful, but she was superstitious, and she was a tyrant, for lack of a better word. If you cross her, she is going to make an example out of you. Now, because of her, the relationship between Chrysostom and the emperor is going to turn sour. See, Chrysostom couldn't be bought. He was unworldly. He didn't want money. He didn't want, well, he just wanted to preach the word. Verse by verse, he wanted, uh, and he was very critical of the rich. Not for being rich, but for their excesses. He's like, God doesn't care if you're rich, but you guys are greedy. You're you're hoarding on this stuff, and you can help people, but you're not. And, And what does Jesus teach us to do? So he was critical of that. And, of course, you couldn't bribe him because he didn't care about power. He wasn't interested in politics where some bishops were. Um, And he would not pull back or tone down or soften his hard-hitting style of preaching. The rich people often got offended by him and say, hey, can't you tone it down? And he's like, I won't. I will not tone it down. If this is what the word says and this is how it's supposed to be applied, I'm not going to tone it down just because you're offended at God's word. Not going to happen. Can't do it that way. And so because of that, there's going to be certain women in Eudokia's, um, what do you call them? She had her own female court. And you're going to have some women in that. And they hated his statements against rich women. He would preach hard against the rich women and, and how much they're wasting and just adorning themselves. Um, and so they didn't like that. And, and, and their worldly behavior, they didn't like him calling it out. So they were whispering in her ears and she was turning against him in her head. But what's really going to cause her to go all out against him is one of the sermons he preaches. He'll preach a sermon from 1 Kings 21. And if you know anything about 1 Kings 21, that is about Naboth uh, being murdered because Ahab wants his vineyard. And and he's like, I'll buy it off you. And and, uh, and Naboth's like, I'm not going to sell it to you. This is my family's inheritance. So Jezebel, the wife of Ahab's like, Who are, who's this guy to say no to you? I'll take care of it. She has a murdered, Naboth murdered, and then she seizes his vineyard and she gives it to, uh, to her husband. And then Elijah finds out, well, God tells Elijah. And so Elijah goes and says, hey, this is the word of God. You're all going to die for this Jezebel. You're going to be eaten by dogs. So anyhow, he preaches this sermon And it was clear that as he's critiquing Jezebel, everybody's like, he's also critiquing the Empress Eudokia because she just recently seized a vineyard from a widow. A widow whose husband wasn't there to protect her. She wanted the vineyard. I'm the Empress who could say no to me. And she took it. And then Chrysostom, again, he doesn't care. He will speak truth to power, as they say, Um, (laughs) which I hate that phrase. But that's exactly what he would do. And he's like, look. What you did is no different than what Jezebel did. And look at what God did with that. And you can't just, because you're powerful, take something that you want from someone who's powerless. Well, now that he he preached that, she done hated him at this point. Uh, But he was so popular and so loved, even the empress couldn't just have him killed 
or exiled. She's like, wait a minute, there'd be riots. So she has this hatred stirring in her heart, but she has to have more of a slow game to get rid of him. And one thing she realizes, there are factions within the church against him. The people loved him, not all the clergy. Because among the Eastern clergy and priests and all that and the monks, there was an anti-Chrysostom faction. Uh, they were the, everybody loved him, but these guys didn't. Some of them hated him because of his zeal and his reform. You know, he's just so in our face with the scripture. And he just preaches, you know, so straightforward. He's so uncompromising, so unyielding and, and, and just single-minded. So they didn't like him. It's like, that's the kind of pastor you want. But they didn't like him. So they conspired against him. These were complacent bishops that liked the banquets that the predecessor threw on before that. And so they felt threatened by him and his reforms. So she is going to play into that faction. But you also got to remember something I told you last week um, when I was talking about the Christological controversies. I mentioned that some of the guys of Alexandria, Egypt, hated the fact that Constantinople now surpassed Alexandria in terms of prestige. And so because of that, you're going to have some bishops of Alexandria that hate any bishop of Constantinople. And this is going to lead to probably his greatest enemy, a man named Theophilus, the patriarch of Alexandria, or the bishop of Alexandria. And remember last time I told you that Cyril of Alexandria, uh, his uncle was the bishop before him and took out John Chrysostom. This is that uncle, Theophilus. Bad guy. I don't like this guy at all. He was his most dangerous enemy. He, as I told you, he resented the fact that Constantinople was now greater than Alexandria, and he personally hated Chrysostom because there were four monks called the Tall Brothers, because they were all tall, um, that Theophilus, he condemned them for something. And Chrysostom's like, they didn't do anything worth condemning them, so he received them and would you know, allow them to partake of the sacrament and stuff like that. So because he received those that Theophilus condemned, that was one more reason where Theophilus is like, I've got to bring this guy down. Now, by 403, the year 403, Chrysostom had enough enemies in Constantinople that Theophilus saw his opportunity. So what he did is he left Alexandria, and rather than taking the shortcut across the Mediterranean to Constantinople, he actually walked up through Israel, all the way through Turkey, stopping at every church he could, and spent hours upon hours in each one, telling lies about Chrysostom, that he was sexually immoral, that he was greedy, that he stole money, that he used physical violence against his opponents. Every word was a lie. And this guy's a stinking bishop. But anyhow, every, every word was a lie. And he convinced all these bishops of this. So these people who never met Chrysostom, they heard good things about him, but now they've heard bad things. Now they think he's a rapscallion. And so by the time Theophilus gets to Constantinople, he shows up and tells the empress, I'm the enemy of Chrysostom. I plan on bringing him down. So she lets him stay in the palace. And he stays weeks in the palace, you know, uh, lobbying and schmoozing all of Chrysostom's enemies in Constantinople. And so then, as the conspiracy thickens, what, what, they're gonna, what he's going to do is he convinces the emperor to let him convene a council of bishops. But of course, the bishops that all come are the ones he already poisoned against Chrysostom. And so then he summons Chrysostom. You must show up to this meeting. Chrysostom's like, this is baloney. This is not a legitimate council. I will not show up. 
Well, they falsely accused him of greed, sexual immorality, gluttony, and violence, and they excommunicated him. Is pretty much what they did. They they said that uh, that we have deposed you. You are no longer the patriarch, and they informed the whole court and the whole city of the removal. Now, what's interesting with this is the emperor Arcadius. He agreed. He said, "All right, the council has spoken." He sent soldiers to arrest him. The people of the city surrounded the church and said, "You got to get through us." So, are we going to follow the emperor? Or our pastor, they're like, we're following our pastor. You'll have to kill us all if you're going to arrest him. And so you almost had a full revolution. The emperor was actually powerless. But Chrysostom, wanting peace, said, no, I don't want anybody dying for me. And so he surrendered himself. And he gets arrested. Uh, They put him on a ship. And uh, they're going to send him off somewhere towards the Black Sea, if I remember right. Um, But... But the interesting thing is, before the ship could set sail, they instantly recall him back. No, no, bring him back. Make him the, the, the patriarch again. Some disaster happened in Constantinople the day after they deposed him and arrested him. Uh, historians debate, was it a plague? Was it an earthquake? Nobody knows, but it was something to where both the emperor and the empress thought, okay, we sinned and God punished us for this. Bring the man back before he gets too far. So it's very, very interesting. Um, and some people speculate that maybe she had a miscarriage. Who knows? Something big happened to where the royal family was convinced God was on Chrysostom's side. So they recall him back. Theophilus has to go back to Alexandria completely humiliated. It's like he won, but then he lost because God thwarted him. But Chrysostom's still going to fall because Eudokia still doesn't like him. She just, there just needs to be something else that'll offend her and that something else comes up. She had a silver statue of herself built and put near the church. And then a whole bunch of wild celebrations happened. And I'm assuming those wild celebrations included immorality and drinking. And it was loud and it was on Sunday and it interrupted the church service. So Chrysostom preached and spoke publicly against these celebrations. How dare you celebrate this on the Lord's day and interrupt the Lord's service? And so, of course, she was enraged. How dare he speak against the celebrations in honor of my statue? So, of course, her spineless husband agrees with her. And the interesting thing is both her and her husband received to receive, or refused to receive communion from his hand on Christmas Day in 403. They're like, we refuse to let this man put the Lord's Supper in our mouths or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, you know, you're, you're the ones sinning by not taking it. But anyhow... At this point, remember, his old enemy, Theophilus, senses another opportunity. And so he wrote to the emperor and he said, hey, we got a loophole here because 60 years ago, a law was passed that said if a bishop was deposed by a council, it takes another council to reinstate him. We had a council that deposed him, but you guys reinstated him without a council. So if you want to remove him again, you can. Now, of course, we know this argument's baloney because that council didn't count, but the emperor's like, perfect. Let's act like it counted. Let's act like it's legitimate. And so, yeah, we'll remove him. And so what they did at first is they put him on house arrest. And this is in the the weeks leading up to Easter. Now, one thing that you need to know about Easter at that time on the eve of Easter, Easter Eve, is when they did baptisms. 
Chrysostom was on house arrest, so he could not go and preach. He couldn't go and, and, and you know, do the sacraments, and, and so he couldn't go and do the baptisms. But he told the elders, the presbyters under him, carry on like business like normal, and you baptize those people. And, uh, and this made the emperor and empress mad. How dare he? Only the bishop could be there to do that. No, bishops can delegate, and he chose to delegate. And uh, so when people showed up to get baptized on Easter Eve, they sent soldiers. I believe it was 400 soldiers... Um, yeah, it was about 400 soldiers into the church to stop it and said, you will not do these baptisms. And they actually killed people in the church. I don't know how many they killed, but they killed people. And so on Easter day, the next day, the people were like, forget this emperor. They met outside and we're going to have a worship service anyway. And then the soldiers still attacked them and killed some people. And then the clergy that was loyal to Chrysostom, they were arrested. They were arrested, and then the clergy that were not loyal to Chrysostom actually tried to have him assassinated, paid somebody to try to kill him, but the, the assassins failed. Now, guys, these are churchmen. These are churchmen and leaders within the church, but they are married to the state, and they're married to wealth. And so when the biblical man comes and preaches against both the power and the wealth, these guys are willing to try to have him killed. Now, they failed. I'm not exactly sure how it was thwarted, but pretty much popular support of Chrysostom was still, still there. The people still loved him, so it made it difficult for the government to get rid of him. Arcadius is just going to pull the trigger on it, though. The enemy clergy says, listen, the people are never going to not like him. You just got to do it, man. And so he does it. He deposes Chrysostom and he exiles him. Um, now, Chrysostom could have called on the people to riot. He could have said, you know what? You guys are just unjust rulers. You know, people overthrow them. They would have. That's how much people loved him because he was a good pastor, but he refused. He refused, uh, and instead he submitted to them, uh, allowed himself to be arrested, and submitted to their banishment. Now, they murdered him, as far as I'm concerned, and, and here's why. First, he was sent to Armenia, where he was under military guard, and he was dragged from city to city for three years just to make his life uncomfortable. We'll have him under guard, put him in this city, and then move him to another one, and then move him to another one. Keep doing this. And then they appointed a new bishop in Constantinople, but the people would not accept him. It's like, no, John Chrysostom is our bishop. So people wouldn't accept the new corrupt guy. Uh, people would meet outside in open air for worship rather than go to government churches. And this lasted 30 years. That's how the, I, I, I like the fact that the people, by and large, were loyal to the truth here. Um, well, 407, Arcadius and Eudokia decide that we just got to make this guy die. And so they make his exile worse. They deport him to Piteus, which is the furthest fortress on the eastern extremity of the empire. As far as the eastern border is, that way it's susceptible to Persians. Persians could come over and kill everyone there. Oops, sorry. John Chrysostom got killed by the Persians. But it didn't even have to come to that because the military escort that was taking them there was also, they were also commanded that pay no attention to his health or safety. Don't feed him. Don't give them water. And they made a march without food or water in a scorching heat in the hot desert toward Piteus. And he didn't make it. He collapsed on the way and then died within hours. He was 58 years old. And his last recorded words were, glory be to God for all things. I don't know. I, I really like this guy <laughs> for a lot of reasons. 
uh, of all the ancient pastors, if there's any that I'd ever want to be like, it's John Chrysostom, except for the celibacy, you know, and all that. I mean, that's, that's dumb. That's why I'm married. <laughs> but, um, but anyhow, Chrysostom's legacy, 31 years later, in the year 438, the son of Arcadius and Eudokia, Theophilus II was now the emperor. And he's like, we need to bring Chrysostom's bones back to the city and properly bury him. And, they, and he begged God for the forgiveness of the sins of his parents. God, this city could be cursed because of what my parents did to Chrysostom. I beg for forgiveness. I'm going to get his bones. I'm going to bring them back here. And, uh, and we're going to give him the proper respect that he deserves. And by this point, 30 year, 31 years later, there was no one alive who would vilify Chrysostom or his memory. Uh, and so because of what, what the emperor did here, it stopped the division. And people were going to go back to the churches instead of being in the open air and, and, and things like that. And so Theodosius II, uh, in, in this case, uh, he, he did it right. Um, so Chrysostom has gone down as one of the greatest preachers, theologians, commentators, and martyrs. I think you could add him to the list of martyrs in the history of the church. But there's a lesson to be learned. His downfall showed that you cannot, that no bishop in the Eastern Empire could stand up against the emperor and win. This is different than the West. Remember in the West when Ambrose stood up to Theodosius I and Ambrose won? In the West, that can happen. The priest can win. In the East, the emperor is going to win. Hence, Chrysostom died at 58 years old. He probably could have had 20 more years of, of preaching. So that shows the difference between the Caesaropapism of the East and the developing papism in the West. And so some people, just to you know, bring it to today, some people wonder, like, why the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church rubber stamps whatever Vladimir Putin says. It's because it's an Eastern Caesaropapism relationship. He will not win. He will be killed and somebody else will replace him. Now, that doesn't mean it, it, he's justified in supporting the war in Ukraine and, and stuff like that. It just simply tells you the reality of the situation. Chrysostom valued his integrity more and so he would challenge the Caesar. And he died, but he still stood his ground. Uh, in the West, you could challenge the Caesar and you could win. In the East, not so much. So that's Chrysostom. Now I'm going to move to Jerome. I'll be faster on Jerome uh, and then see how far I could get into Augustine. Uh, but, but Jerome lived from 347 to 420. Uh, he is known as the most accomplished scholar of the early church, which is fitting. It's true. Uh, he was born in Dalmatia, which would be like in Slovenia, Croatia, so the Balkans today. He studied logic, philosophy, and rhetoric in Rome. He was baptized as a Christian in the year 370. 374, he did the hermit life. And again, I'll tell you all about the monks and monasticism in a later lesson. But he became a hermit in the Syrian desert. And there, he's going to do something that nobody else was doing in this time. He learned Hebrew. He found some Jewish rabbis and said, please, teach me Hebrew. I want to be able to read the Old Testament in the original language rather than the Septuagint, which is a translation. He was thinking like a scholar. So he is one of the only Christians of this time that could read Hebrew. And that's going to lead to an important detail uh, in a few minutes. Now, he was ordained as a presbyter 
in Antioch in the year 379. Afterwards, he will travel to the capital, Constantinople, and he will study theology with Gregory of Nazianzus, the, the great Cappadocian uh, church father. The, I talked about him a, a couple lessons ago. Uh, Nazianzus was brilliant. I had to read his theological or orations for a class and his refutation of Apollinarius. Like, brilliant. Well, Jerome became real good buddies with him, and so they were able to nerd out because they were both phenomenal scholars, although Jerome probably even more capable than Gregory. Uh, they became close friends, and then next in 382, Jerome visited Rome, where Pope uh, Damasus, he would still be called uh, Bishop Damasus, but they were starting to use the title Pope. And remember, Pope is the Western equivalent of Patriarch, uh, and there's only one Patriarch in the West. Rome. And so, anyhow, so Pope Damasus, uh, he's the Pope from 366 to 384. He asks Jerome, he's like, you know what? You're the guy for this job. We need a Latin Bible. In the West half of the empire, hardly anybody speaks Greek anymore, but everybody speaks Latin. We need a Latin translation of the Bible. And Jerome's like, I'll do it. It'll take him 23 years but he's going to produce a really, really solid, for the most part, um, translation of the Bible. It's not going to be perfect, uh, but it's going to be better than what they had. Because when you understand the Latin Bibles, the Vulgate that Jerome creates was not the first. There were Latin Bibles, Latin translations floating around, but none of them were good. We have fragments of them, and scholars look at them and are like, ah, this is garbage. And even the Latin-speaking Christians a lot of times found it necessary, like Tertullian and, and, and those folks, they would have to rely on some Greek stuff as well, because the Latin translations just weren't good. So what Jerome is going to do is he's going to start fresh. He's going to use the Greek New Testament, and he's going to be the first guy to use the original Hebrew of the Old Testament. He finishes the masterpiece in the year 405, which is the Latin Vulgate. This became the accepted translation of the Bible in the Western Church until the Reformation of the 16th century. Now, a little bit of irony here, and I know we all love irony, right? The word Vulgate Sounds like the word vulgar, right? Same root. Vulgar today just means like farting or being gross. But the, but the word actually just means common. If something's vulgar, it's common. The Pope wanted a Bible in the common language for the common person so that the common person could understand it. And that is why Jerome made the Vulgate. It, it, that was the purpose of it. Now, over the course of time, it gets its own exalted status in the Roman Catholic Church, where now it's not common, it's, it's like as if it fell down from heaven itself. And so you fast forward a thousand years, hardly anybody speaks Latin. They speak French, they speak German, they speak Spanish, they speak Italian, not Latin. And so some people are like, well, we need to bring the Bible to people in their common tongue. And the church is like, we will kill you if you do that. It is a capital offense to make the Bible for the common man and in the common tongue. Why would you ever do that? It's meant for the priests, not for the common people. And yet the Vulgate itself was made for the common people. That is the irony with it. Uh, so the Roman Catholic Church resisted and killed people. And the, the irony is Jerome would have totally agreed with Luther, Calvin, and Tyndale about making translations that people could understand. He probably rolled in his grave that they were using his translation as, as if like it's the final one, there better never be anything else. Now, something else that comes up with Jerome. 
is his skill in Hebrew uncovered something that nobody else knew at this time. We know it now, but he discovered that the Septuagint had books in it that were not part of the Hebrew Old Testament. This is what we call the Apocrypha. The rest of the church at this time assumed it was just part of the Old Testament. Jerome has the Hebrew Old Testament. He's like, it's not. The Jews don't recognize it. These things aren't even written in Hebrew. They were originally written in Greek. And so he's like, these are not the word of God. Now, Augustine's going to push back on him and say, well, let's treat them like they are. And Jerome's like, no, they're not. So when he makes his Vulgate, he keeps the apocryphal books out. He's going to say we must only accept as part of the Old Testament the books which the Jews included in the Hebrew Bible. And he's right. And we Protestants do the same thing today. Now, the church did call these extra books apocrypha, which means hidden things. They are the hidden things. And they were titled this way because even though the church treated them as if they were part of the biblical corpus in some places, they understood they were not on the same level as the New Testament and what we call the Old Testament, so they never had them read out loud. They were never read out loud in church, even though... Church fathers would say they're authoritative. They weren't part of the worship because deep down everybody knew they were not the same. And so Jerome's just saying, here's why they're not the same. They shouldn't be there. Now, Protestants today, we use the Old Testament as Jerome identified the Old Testament. The irony, here's some more irony for you. The Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent in 1546 decreed that the Apocrypha is part of the inspired Old Testament and they anathematized those who don't. So in other words, the Catholics said the Apocrypha is part of the Old Testament. And if you don't accept this, we curse you to hell and uh, you deserve to die. Uh, And again, that's There's irony with it because the Jerome that gave them the Vulgate would have been anathematized by their anathemas in 1546. The Protestants were actually sticking with Jerome more than the Catholics were. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they uh, have no official position. Uh, Probably most of them do accept it as biblical, but not all of them do. There's no universal consensus. Um, The Greek Orthodox, they accept it. The Russian Orthodox, they see it as instructive. I I remember, I think I had a Latvian Orthodox chaplain that I worked with in the field. He accepted it, and he got mad when I called it the Apocrypha. He's like, it's deuterocanonical. I'm like, I'm not going to call it that. It's apocryphal. So there's still some people that that use it, but um, it's clearly not Scripture. It's not the Word of God. Now, a little more about Jerome. While he was in Rome, he won the favor of many in the aristocracy, Uh, And he used his influence to convince them to embrace the monastic life. Like, y'all need to be monks. You need to become monks. Um, And, you know, the weird thing was the pagans were in awe of this because when they saw rich people of the aristocracy give all their wealth away to the poor and and, and then transform their wealthy homes into monasteries for monks and nuns, the pagans are like, I want to do that for my gods. But these Christians... A lot of them are willing to do it for their God. And so that actually uh, drew more people to the faith, believe it or not. Um, Now, again, a lot of the aristocracy and a lot of the regular people liked Jerome. 
But like Chrysostom, he's going to make enemies out of some of the power brokers. When it came to the political class, those who held political office and the Roman clergy, they did not like him because he attacked worldliness. He said this worldliness in the church is unacceptable. The worldliness in the clergy is unacceptable. And the worldliness in the magistrates, meaning the, the political class, is unacceptable. Your low morality is not right. Okay, your sexual immorality, your drunkenness, it's not right. Uh, so when they insulted and mocked him because they would start making fun of him, they didn't realize he's wittier and smarter than them. So he would return fire with far greater skill. If they made fun of him, he would make fun of them in such a way where they would be absolutely publicly humiliated. I'm not saying it's right, but that's just what Jerome meant, what he could do. You don't talk trash to the guy who's the best trash talker in town. He's going to beat you every time. And that's what happened here. And this is one bad thing about Jerome. If somebody started a quarrel with him, he turned it into a war. He will spend the rest of his life just trashing that person, which is not good. But that's what he did. Now, as long as Damasus was pope, Jerome was covered. When Damasus died in 384, Jerome's like, I better get out of here because I will be dead within a week. I made too many enemies here with my mouth. And so he flees. He flees Rome. And from 386 onward, he will live out his days in a monastery in Bethlehem. And he will lead and train and teach other monks there. Now, he wrote many works. He penned uh, scholarly commentaries on different books of the Bible. He translated important Greek theological works into Latin. Because, uh, again, a lot of the theologians who only spoke Latin uh, couldn't understand the good stuff from the Cappadocians and some great stuff coming from the Greek thinkers. So he would take some of it and put it in Latin for them. Uh, he opened a school for neighborhood children. Uh, just, you know, he, he did good things. He was bad to the people who disagreed with him. In fact, he even took a shot at Augustine. When he made the Vulgate, Augustine's like, are you sure you want to do this? Because a lot of us think that the Septuagint itself is inspired. And, and, and you're making a mistake. Augustine was acting like a King James-only person. And Jerome's like, you know what? You're just a halfwit. <laughs> Forget you. And, and Jerome went forward with what he did. Now, later, uh, when they both are taking on the Pelagians... Separately from each other, Jerome reads Augustine's works against the Pelagians, and he changes his mind and says, Augustine is actually brilliant. I take it back. You're a good guy. And then, you know, they will work together against the Pelagians. So Augustine's one guy that Jerome won't hold a grudge against forever. But typically, if you cross Jerome, he will hold a grudge against you for the rest of his life. Um, he did participate in the major controversies like the Pelagian controversy. In fact, the Pelagians in Israel or Palestine... Israel. They burned down his monastery in Bethlehem, which forced him to flee into hiding for two years. Now, his legacy in his writings, he wrote to persuade people of the goodness of celibacy and monasticism. He wasn't saying you have to be celibate. In fact, he said marriage is good, but he said celibacy is a superior form of Christian life. And one thing that I find interesting with that is I think we end up getting the opposite today. You have some people who have, I would say, they've idolized marriage. Like if you don't get married and you don't have kids, there's something wrong with you. And I understand that Genesis does give the creation dominion mandate, you know, 
get married, have babies, fill the earth with God's image bearers. And, and yes, that is part of, part of what we're supposed to do. But the New Testament makes it clear. Paul says it is better to be like he is. He even says in light of the, the perfect age coming and this present age dying when, you know, things like marriage and stuff like that's not going to transfer over. He said, live now as if we're already in that time. Now, of course, he'll temper that, though, with husbands love your wives, wives, you know, submit to your husband. So he's not telling you to abandon your families. But the emphasis is seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be provided. The emphasis that Jesus says is all those who've left father, mother, brothers and sisters and children, obviously grown children, you know, for, for the sake of the kingdom, you'll receive more in the kingdom to come. And so I don't think Jerome is wrong. I, it, maybe I do. I think celibacy and marriage are both equal options and you could serve the Lord. But Paul says, if you're married, your interests are divided. If you're celibate, they're not. And so I could understand why Jerome is going to say it's a higher form of Christian living to be celibate. But I don't like that because now it's almost like we have this class of superior Christians because they chose not to marry. And that's not what the scripture teaches. And because of that mentality, it's eventually going to come to the point where you cannot serve God unless you're celibate. And then everybody else just ends up as lay persons who don't get to serve. Um, so there is a problem with what he's saying. But I also think we have a problem if we act like celibacy is wrong or if that, that there's, yeah, there's, we just have to have the right biblical balance on this. Um, so can, so can, huh? Yep, exactly. If, if, if Paul, Paul says to the one who can do this or to Jesus, he says the one who could, who this is granted to, but it's not easy. Um, now Jerome convinced a lot of women of celibacy. He had an easier time convincing the women to forego sexual relations than he did men. So there will be more women that join the nunneries than there will be men that, that join the monasteries. Um, but, you know, there's going to be a good number of both. But he convinces a lot of women, and a lot of them follow him from Rome. They're like, you know what, this is the, the, the monk that needs to teach us. So they follow him from Rome to Bethlehem. There's no hint of anything funny going on there. They just agreed with celibacy and thought he was the best teacher. They follow him to Bethlehem. The most famous was a woman named Paula. Um, she was the one in the picture on the last slide. This is a old icon of, of Paula. But anyhow, um, she actually came from two of the most ancient noble families of Rome. So, you know, the father's side was one and the mother's was the other. But I, I remember I took a Roman history class as an undergraduate for history, and there were no names in Rome. Well, very few names in Rome that were that go back further and had more esteem and privilege than the Gracchis and the Scipios. And she came from both of them. She came from both of them. So talk about a pedigree of a, just a Roman of Romans. Yeah, and so she was wealthy. Well, she gave that all up. She used her wealth to build a monastery, three nunneries, and a hospital. And she was so inspired by Jerome that she also learned Hebrew. So here's a woman who could do what most of the most prominent male bishops couldn't do. She could read and translate Hebrew and tell you what the Old Testament means in its original language. Um, and again, she was inspired by Jerome for that. Now, Jerome died around 420. He was ill. He was blind. But his influence in Western Christianity would have been more than anybody else's, if not for the next guy, 
which is Augustine of Hippo. Um, and so there's his dates. I realize we're at 8 o'clock now, and I don't want to um, keep going because then the children's ministry people end up having to work later than they should. And so I will cover Augustine next time. I realized there was just a lot on John Chrysostom this time. There will be a lot on Augustine next time, and there's going to be a lot on the Pelagian controversy. So I will hit those next time. What I'll do for now is uh, cut the recording, and then I'll take questions.